Hey there, this is Paul, the host and the true crime enthusiast of the title, extending a very warm welcome and some big thanks for joining in with episode 7 of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. Episode 7, we are flying through these episodes now aren't we? I hope my enthusiasm for doing this continues to shine through and as always it's awesome that you guys continue to join me. I do hope you've all had a good week. If you've had a pretty crap week, well I hope that next week is better for you. And I hope that this half hour or so helps out. Now I've taken some advice and considered that I may sound like some kind of simpering, gushing, weepy getting an award by my constant thanks all the time at the start of these episodes. But it's just the type of guy that I am. I am grateful and thankful and I feel it's important to express that. But I'll try not to overdo it from now on. So please just know that the sentiment is always there and your continued support does mean the world. This week, it's not a podcast that I'm recommending. Well, at least not yet it isn't, and I undoubtedly believe that it should be. But it's a written blog. It's one I came across because it concerns an unsolved case that I have long considered as either a written study for my own blog, or even a podcast episode for the true crime enthusiast. But that's not going to happen now. Not because it's a case not worth covering, That would go against everything echoed on the podcast in the weeks to date. But because the work of this particular blog covers the case and is unquestionably the definitive work that not only already exists about it, but ever likely will. I'm a firm believer, as I've said before, that if someone covers a case expertly, why would you even try to put your own spin on it? I mean, you wouldn't try to remake The Godfather, would you? So the blog in question is entitled The Keeley Chronicles and is written by a Dublin blogger, true crime buff and musician named Keeley Mott and it concerns the unsolved murder of German backpacker Inga Maria Hauser who was found dead in April 1988 in Ballypatrick Forest in Ireland's County Antrim. Inga's case is especially tragic and sad and it's not for me to recap or recount the facts here I must admit that I would normally steer clear of anything that serialises a single case. I'm more a story of the week kind of guy, but having been familiar with Inga's case, I read Keeley's blog. It took a while, but I was that captivated with it. Where I was especially blown away with it is not just the tireless drive that the author has about the subject, or the exclusive never-before-seen facts, pictures and even audio recordings that Keeley reveals through her painstaking research, but also her honesty and her style of writing and the clear effect that Inga's murderers had on her. Keeley's band, Session Mots, even writes songs inspired by Inga's case. How lovely is that? And they're great songs as well. Yeah, real heart and soul has gone into this blog and it makes for a riveting read and Inga's story will haunt the reader. Thanks in full now to Keeley's work, Inga's case is this week being mentioned again on television and in the press. So that's proof indeed that people who don't forget and who want to do something, even years later, can make a difference. I can't recommend the blog enough and I urge you to check it out for yourselves. That's the Keeley Chronicles. It's a WordPress blog and full details will be up with the show notes this week. So back to this week on the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. And well, as this episode goes out, it's just been bonfire night here in the UK. If you have been to one, I hope everyone enjoyed and was safe, of course. I always love a bonfire myself, even though it seems a strange thing to celebrate and commemorate what was an attempted act of terrorism and mass murder. If someone can put me right and tell me why we do this, please do. Anyway, it's been and gone for another year. 
And of course, there'll soon be another time of year to prepare for and focus upon. You get what I'm saying? It'll be here before you know it, eh? The case covered this week on the podcast spans 27 years in total, and it began almost 39 years ago to this very day. And I must advise that this week's episode contains descriptions of physical and sexual violence that some people may find disturbing. Now I don't apologise for this, I'm a firm believer that details have to be told in a story. So get comfy, light your last sparkler if you have any got left. Please join the true crime enthusiast this week as we look back at the murder of Nora Trott. The town of Roachford in the English home county of Essex is the main settlement in the Roachford district, which is one of the local government districts there. Apart from it being the birthplace of television countdown mathematician Rachel Riley and jazz musicians Jamie Cullum and Digby Fairweather. Now I've got no idea who that is, but I am not passing up a chance to name drop someone with such an epic sounding name. For many years, about the only thing that made Roachford stand out from other towns the length and breadth of the country is that up until the late 1980s, its biggest employer was the factory Lesneys, which made the world-famous Matchbox miniature die-cast models. I had many of them. I especially remember having the General Lee car model from the Dukes of Hazard. As happens all over though, places closed down, and this factory closed in 1987. And other businesses from years gone by have also closed long since. Numbers 7 to 9 on Roachford's North Street are today occupied by a firm of solicitors, a charity shop and a ladies hair salon. But 39 years ago, in 1978, an old-fashioned ladies clothing shop called Felicity Jane occupied the premises. At the time, the shop was run by 63-year-old Nora Margaret Trott, who also lived alone in the flat above the shop. Nora was a well-known figure in Roachford and was well-liked and respected within the community due to her kind-hearted nature and active and outgoing lifestyle. Aside from being a founding member and acting secretary of the Roachford Chamber of Trade, Nora enjoyed a refined lifestyle. She liked to take part in sailing, she liked fine dining and she enjoyed trips to the theatre. She was kind to her friends and neighbours, often running errands for people and generally fetching and carrying for friends who were in need. She was also known to be a massive animal lover and was known to feed and adopt various stray cats in the area, paying for their upkeep and any vet expenses that they needed out of her own pocket. Nora had been divorced from her husband Ronald Trott since 1960, but the two had remained on very good terms and when he'd remarried again, Nora had even acted as an anti-type figure to her ex-husband's new wife's children. Nora and Ronald had had no children of their own, and as such, Nora took this role very seriously and enjoyed it, as one would expect from the type of character Nora is described as being. She didn't have any other surviving relatives except for a sister, Tessa, who lived nearby in Hawkwell, so perhaps this is why she chose to be such an active and involved person. She was considered to be an attractive woman who was said to look much younger than her 63 years. And although she had many friends and equally many suitors, in 1978 she was not in any romantic relationship. She was just happy with her life and happy how things were. So it's November the 6th, 1978, the night after bonfire night, and today just a day past 39 years exactly to the day. 
Where Nora's shop and flat were on Roachford's North Street, there is a lane still opposite called Old Ship Lane, which runs and joins onto Roachford's East Street. In 1978, there wasn't very much occupying this lane, there was a car park, and at the time there was a public house called the Old Ship Inn, and although this building still stands, it's no longer a pub. Today, there is also a health centre on the lane, and back in 1978, the site of where this health centre was, was a block of three lock-up garages that were the property of Hawkwell Parish Council. Nora rented the middle garage from them and kept her Morris 1100 saloon car stored inside it, just 80 yards or so from her shop and her home. That evening, Nora had set out on one of her mercy missions to visit a long-standing friend of hers, Frank Prime, at his home in Southland-on-Sea, as Frank had been ill and Nora was taking him a goodie bag to cheer him up. At some time after 7 o'clock p.m., Nora left her home and walked to the garage to get her car out to go and visit Frank. Although in November it is long dark by 7 o'clock, the lane was quite well lit by street lamps from both North and East streets. However, Nora never made it to Frank's that evening. Frank was concerned when Nora hadn't arrived an hour after she was expected, and he telephoned her flat but got no response. He then rang Nora's sister Tessa, who also said that she hadn't seen or heard from Nora that day, and then he called another friend, Alan Cater. Alan lived in Roachford and was a close friend of Nora's, and consequently had a key to her flat, and after several other attempts to find Nora had failed to do so, Alan took the spare key and went to Nora's flat sometime after midnight. He found nobody there, and fearing that she may have had a car accident or was hurt or ill somewhere, he walked across into Old Ship Lane to see if Nora's car was still in the garage. He found the usually padlocked garage doors slightly ajar, and had a cursory look around inside. Nora's car was still in the garage, and was locked and the engine was cold, but on the floor next to the car lay Nora's handbag, with no sign of Nora herself. Feeling uneasy, and as though something had happened, Alan Cater contacted police. Two police officers soon arrived at the scene shortly before 1am on the 7th of November and immediately noticed the garage padlock laying on the floor and some spots of blood on the doorframe. They went back to Nora's flat and made a search of it, but this second look confirmed that Nora was indeed not there. They returned to the lock-up garages and began to make a search of the immediate area and shortly up an overgrown alleyway that ran between the left-hand lock-up garage and the brick wall of the old ship-in garden, they found the body of Nora Trot. One look told the officers that they were looking at the victim of a murder. Nora had been found naked, with a blue peaked cap, a glove and bracelet, and two belts that she had been wearing found discarded by her body. Her broken glasses and the remaining glove were found by the garage doorway, but the rest of her clothing, her coat, Blouse, skirt, underwear and shoes were nowhere to be found. They were later found to have been placed tidily in the car boot. She was also heavily bloodstained about the face. Immediately, Essex Police launched a major inquiry and Detective Inspector Ken Smith was appointed as the officer in charge. At the time, this was the largest murder investigation in the history of Essex Police and after a local police surgeon attended the scene and formally certified the necessary but clinical term life extinct, Nora's body was removed for post-mortem examination by home office pathologist Professor James Cameron. 
His findings led detectives to believe they were looking for a maniac. In the opinion of the pathologist, Nora had been dead for up to five hours before she was found, and that it was likely that she had been savagely attacked from behind, with the first blow knocking her senseless and causing her to strike the garage door with her face and fall to the ground. This had caused a compound fracture of her nose, and before she could cry out, her attacker had stamped on her throat and crushed her voice box. She had then been beaten so violently that she had wounds including many lacerations, a fractured cheekbone and a fractured palate. Several of her teeth had been knocked out and one was found still lodged in her throat and cause of death was due to asphyxia due to the inhalation of her own blood. If this wasn't horrific and disturbing enough, Nora's attacker had then stripped her and violently raped and buggered her. The inquiry began in earnest and forensic examinations of Nora's body, clothing, and the scene itself yielded results. Semen was found both on her clothing and from an internal swab, and showed the killer to be of the A blood group. Although this was before the onset of DNA profiling, it did at least mean that detectives could disregard a suspect found to have any other blood grouping besides A. A major incident room was set up at Roachford Police Headquarters and a static caravan remained parked near to the crime scene for the initial couple of weeks of the inquiry. A search of the entire area for any missing property or a possible murder weapon was undertaken and this led to Nora's upper denture which was wrapped in her knickers and both of her purses, which still contained money, being found on waste ground near the off-licence located on East Street. 200 police officers were drafted in to assist in the investigation, with a briefing to gain descriptions and personal details of every male between 10 and 40 years of age who lived in the area, and to establish their movements on the evening of the murder, and to corroborate any alibis that were given. Polaroid photographs of everyone interviewed were also taken to build up an album of photographs of potential suspects should any important witnesses be found. Detectives got to knocking on doors within the area in an attempt to gain information, witnesses and to determine any possible suspects. All local pubs and social clubs were visited and staff and customers were interviewed in an attempt to determine a picture of who had been in or around Roachford Town Centre on the evening after bonfire night. Several witnesses did come forward and it helped detectives to establish the sequence of events that occurred that evening. Firstly, it was established that Nora was alive at least just until a little after 7 o'clock p.m. as she had telephoned one of her employees and the employee could confirm this time because it was during Emmerdale Farm which the employee regularly watched and which started at 7 p.m. Also, at around 7.45 p.m. that evening, two local boys had been seen hanging around the lock-up garages and when traced and spoken to they claimed to have seen nothing out of the ordinary. They claimed to have seen the remnants of a bonfire still burning in the rear garden of the old ship pub and had spoken to a woman there and asked if there were going to be more fireworks that evening. Inquiries at the pub confirmed that the boys had indeed spoken to the mother-in-law of the pub landlord, Mrs Doris Gilder, and she corroborated their story, so Nora must have still been alive at this time. But Mrs Gilder had other information that led detectives to pinpoint the murder as more likely having occurred just after 8 o'clock p.m. Doris claimed that about 8.05 p.m. 
She had been tending to the remnants of the bonfire when she heard a rustling noise coming from behind the wall of the pub garden. Suddenly, a young man's head popped up and startled Doris, a young man who she went on to describe as being white, baby-faced and about 19 to 21 years old, clean-shaven, with long, light brown or blonde hair. She immediately went back inside the pub to fetch her husband Alfred, and when he came out, Alfred immediately went up to the wall, coming to within a metre of the man, and challenged him, suspecting him to be up to no good. The man simply replied, I've got a woman here. Thinking they'd disturbed a courting couple, the Gilders went back into the pub. At about the same time, a couple walking a German shepherd dog up Old Ship Lane towards East Street walked past the entrance to the lock-up garages and had to pull the dog back from the area as it was growling and pulling towards the garages. But they saw nothing out of the ordinary and noticed no young man, however. But at about 8.20pm, the same couple had just reached their home when a young man carrying a shopping bag ran past them from the direction of Old Ship Lane towards East Street. But the most important sighting of the baby-faced man came from two local boys who lived in the nearby street of Oast Way, a road just off the junction with East Street. At about 8.30pm, the two boys saw a young man who was acting suspiciously outside the very house where one of them lived, and when he moved off, they decided to follow him on their bikes. The man was carrying something close to his chest, and as the boys watched him, he went into a cul-de-sac at the far end of Oast Way and put something into a dustbin outside one of the houses. He then retraced his steps and ran into an alleyway that led back onto North Street. The boys continued following this man through the alleyway and watched him turn back into East Street, where the boys noticed a police minivan parked stationary outside the local off-licence. This was of course many hours before Nora's body was found, and at this time it was unknown that a crime had even been committed. But the man had seemed spooked by the presence of police and had fled, causing the boys to lose sight of him. So they returned to the cul-de-sac where the man had deposited the item in the bin and retrieved it, and found it to be a straw-coloured shopping bag. The bag contained various items, including two newspapers, two magazines, some bottles of fruit juice and some chocolate. Thinking this was an odd thing to throw away, the boys took the bag to one of their houses, but on arrival the boy's mother noticed what appeared to be blood staining on the bag. She contacted police, and police responded and seized the bag as found property, thinking it was the haul from a thief who had stolen a bag of shopping out of a car. Remember at this time Nora had not yet been reported missing. There was no identifying property in the bag and no reports of any cars being broken into, so this was really the only course of action available. The description the boys gave of the man tallied with the reports of the baby-faced man who had been seen throughout the vicinity of the murder scene on the night of the murder, and the bag was identified as the one that the man had been seen carrying by the couple with the dog who saw him run past them on East Street just ten minutes before the boys followed him. Despite more than 4,000 households being visited and 11,000 people being spoken to, the baby-faced man wasn't found. The inquiry had looked at known local sex offenders and those with a conviction for violence. Military personnel from near, nearby Shubury Garrison had been looked at. 
Army deserters and prison absconders had also been traced and interviewed, and every possible suspect who had been identified had been interviewed and provided voluntary blood samples, and all had been ruled out. But one individual became a prime suspect in the murder, and he remained so to a number of people for a number of years. He was a local young adult named Hugh Townsend, who had learning difficulties and was the son of the vet that Nora used to take her adopted animals to. He matched the description of the suspect, and he also looked very much like the artist's impressions and photo fits that had been compiled of the baby-faced man by witnesses, and he actually lived very, very close to the murder scene. On the evening of the murder, he had been out alone visiting his grandmother, who lived close by, again to the murder scene, and afterwards he'd visited the off-licence in East Street. However, when he was arrested on suspicion of murder, the blood sample taken from him did not match the killer's blood group, and he was released without charge. He was formally identified on two further separate occasions by Doris Gilder, the woman who had seen and spoken to the baby-faced man in the pub car park on the night of the murder. She identified him as being the man she had seen, and this was in mid-80 and mid-1981. And at the latter time, police were called and they again arrested Hugh. But again, he was forensically eliminated from the inquiry. He was spoken to several other times over the years, but he could give no further information, and by 1993, he had been definitively ruled out as the person of interest. With no other suspects, the investigation wound down and was effectively shelved, with it remaining inactive for many years. Nora's loved ones and friends mourned her loss, and the townsfolk of Roachford were left to live with the unease and chilling feeling that a savage, disturbed killer still lurked out there, perhaps one still walking the streets of the town. It must always be a chilling and sad thought that, I know there's an unsolved murder in a village quite close to where my folks live, and that still stirs up unease and anger. And incidentally, that's a case that will be the focus of a future episode of the podcast. Watch this space. But as the 25th anniversary of Nora's murder approached, police had quite separately received two new pieces of information. Firstly, a woman came forward to say that some days before Nora was killed, she had been attacked in Roachford Town Centre by a man, but had managed to ward off the attack due to the assistance of two members of the public. For reasons undisclosed or unknown, she had not reported this attack at the time, which always makes me question why people don't. After so much publicity about a savage murder, I like to think that I'd be willing to give what could be crucial information at a time when it was especially relevant. I know people may not want to make a fuss or bother police, but this would seem too serious a thing to brush under the carpet. Well, that's my opinion anyway. The second piece of information police had received was in the form of an anonymous letter in which it claimed that the killer of Nora Trott was from Ilford, that he drove a white or cream-coloured car, that he was a regular patron of the old ship pub, and that he would often pester blonde women to join him for a drink, becoming angry if or when they refused. At that time, August 2003, the Essex Police Major Crime Review Team was established, with a focus not just on current unsolved crimes, but also with a view to review and focus upon some of Essex Police's cold cases. The unsolved murder of Nora Trott was chosen to be the first such cold case review, led by retired Detective Chief Inspector Ray Newman. 
Nora's sister Tessa had long since died, but Nora's ex-husband Ronald was still alive, and he immediately agreed to assist in the reinvestigation in whatever capacity he could. He was both pleased and surprised that Nora's long unsolved case was being looked at. The reinvestigation began with a painstaking review of the original case notes. Every witness statement and report had to be reread and every fact rechecked, and the original exhibits, including Nora's clothing, were re-examined, this time with the benefit of the years of scientific breakthroughs in forensic science at the belt. It was discovered that during an earlier routine review of the case, these exhibits had been examined and a partial DNA match of the killer had been obtained but a match had not been found on the National DNA Database. Therefore, the inquiry was not pursued due to time constraints, budgeting and other active cases that took up time, money and manpower. With the reinvestigation in 2003, the DNA sample was again looked at, and it was found to be a partial mixed DNA profile, which meant that it contained the DNA of more than one person. As it was mixed it could not be permanently loaded onto the National DNA Database, and as such could not be automatically be searched for a match as and when new profiles were added to the database. But inquiries revealed that other biological materials from the Nora Trott 1978 murder investigation were still held in storage by both police and the Forensic Science Service. This included a number of items, but most crucially, Nora's tooth that was recovered from her throat was still in storage. From this tooth, scientists were able to develop Nora's own DNA profile and subsequently remove her part of the profile from the part-mixed DNA profile that a match had been unsuccessfully searched for on the National DNA Database. And finally, a part-profile of the killer himself was available. But frustratingly, as it was still only a part-profile, it could not be loaded permanently onto the database. However, the cold case review team arranged for this to be checked on a monthly basis as more and more profiles were added on, hoping that one day a match would flag up either an exact match or a familial DNA one. In August 2004, the monthly review produced a match. The DNA partial profile of the killer of Nora Trott matched that of a 49-year-old builder named Wayne Philip Doherty, who had provided a sample to Cambridge Police on the 4th of July 2004, when he had been arrested for drink driving in Cambridge, and who was currently on bail pending his court appearance for this offence. Inquiries revealed that in 1978, Doherty had lived with his wife at the time and two children in the village of Canowden, a village which is on the outskirts of Roachford, and at the time of Nora's murder he had been working as a builder abroad. However, he was home over the date of the murder, then a few days afterwards had gone to Germany to work, then returned home for Christmas. Crucially, he had been interviewed by detectives investigating Nora's murder on the 18th of December 1978 and had a follow-up interview on the 9th of January 1979, both as part of the routine house-to-house -house inquiries at the time. His account on both occasions was that he'd not even been in Roachford on the evening of the murder, and had in fact been at home decorating, an alibi which was corroborated by his then-wife, albeit a full six weeks after the murder, when she might have been a bit confused of an exact date. So... It was also noted at the time that he was in no way a match for the artist's impression of the suspect, 
and with no reason to suspect him any further, Wayne Philip Doherty was not considered a serious suspect in the murder of Nora Trott. But perhaps he should have been, for just a year after his second police visit, Doherty committed a serious sexual offence against a two-year-old girl. He snatched the girl from a car where she had been left for a moment by a mother who had gone into a church on North Street in Roachford, just yards from the scene of Nora's murder just over a year before. He then carried the girl to a nearby isolated area of wasteland and indecently assaulted her. When the mother returned to the car and realised her daughter was missing, she screamed out in panic. This caused Doty to panic also, and he abandoned the child in the darkness and fled. He was quickly identified as being in the area around the time and was arrested and consequently charged with indecent assault and kidnap. At his trial in July 1980, Doty was sentenced to just 15 months imprisonment for indecent assault. British justice was on form even back then, wasn't it? So with the prime suspect in the rape and murder of Nora Trott, the review team set about making their case against him. Original statements and other important documents pertaining from the 1978 investigation had to be recorded onto the Holmes system used by today's police forces. Holmes is a major computerised database system that was developed after the costly mistakes learned from the massive maze of impossible to collate paperwork that the Yorkshire Ripper inquiry of the late 1970s and early 1980s became. Original witnesses were traced and re-interviewed and all physical evidence from the 1978 investigation was again reviewed to see if further forensic evidence supporting Doherty's guilt was to be forthcoming. In October 2004, a warrant for the arrest of Wayne Philip Doherty was issued by Southend Magistrates Court, and he was arrested on the Channel Island of Guernsey on the 8th of October 2004, where he was working as a building labourer at the time. He was returned to Essex and questioned about Nora's murder, but maintained a no-comment stance, even when confronted with his own DNA evidence. On the 10th of October 2004, Doherty was charged with the rape and murder of Nora Trott in 1978 and was remanded in custody awaiting trial. His trial, to which he pleaded not guilty to rape and murder, began at Basildon Crown Court just over a year later in November 2005 and was attended by many officers who had been part of the initial investigation. Also in attendance was a close personal friend of Nora's sister Tessa who had herself sadly passed away some years previously. And each day, Nora's 84-year-old ex-husband Ronald was in court as he'd made the journey up from his home in Devon. As expected, the two-week trial centred mainly on the DNA evidence in the case, with the lead prosecutor Martin Levitt QC impressing the jury by introducing various expert witnesses, who then carefully explained the scientific procedures behind DNA profiling, the care in which any samples were taken, the method of in-depth cross-checking of samples to ensure that any match was correct, and that beyond doubt, the samples had been securely preserved and their movements from laboratory to laboratory could unquestionably be accounted for and tracked since 1978, meaning there was no chance of cross-contamination. But arguably the most impressive evidence came when Mr Levitt told the jury that there was a 1 in 180 million chance of the DNA found on Mrs Trott's clothing not belonging to Doherty. 
and a 1 in 180,000 chance of the DNA found on her body belonging to someone other than Doherty. In the face of such overwhelming evidence, the jury unanimously decided that Wayne Philip Doherty was guilty of the rape and murder of Nora Trott, and on the 16th of November 2005, Mr Justice Clegg sentenced Doherty to life imprisonment, with a recommendation that he serve at least 23 years before even being considered for release. He was also given a concurrent sentence of 10 years imprisonment for raping Nora, and would be placed on the sex offenders register for the rest of his life. Mr Justice Clegg admonished Doherty for his horrific crime, telling him he was an extremely dangerous man, and one from who the public need to be protected. Doherty was then taken away to begin his life sentence, Justice finally having caught up with him. He has never once expressed any remorse for his crime, or explained his actions that evening. Following the verdict, the last few surviving loved ones of Nora paid tribute to seeing her killer face up to his crime. Ronald Trott said outside the court, This is a great day for the forensic science services and for justice and our jury system. I think that the forensic scientists and Essex police have done a marvellous job in so diligently following up their inquiries 27 years after this terrible event. No one can bring Nora back to enjoy the retirement she was so looking forward to, but convicting her vicious killer is the next best thing. What a dignified response I thought that was, and what a shocking yet gripping case, don't you agree? It does raise some questions for myself though. In 1978, Doherty did not match the description of, nor the artist's impression of the baby-faced man seen in the vicinity of the murder at the time nor did photographs of him from the time match these when looked at years later. Yet the DNA evidence unquestionably proved him to be the killer. So a question remains, who was the baby-faced man seen so many times that evening if it wasn't Doherty? It is possible that this man was at the crime scene, but was an innocent party. A possible theory, and one that I consider likely, is that this man could have indeed been Hugh Townsend. Hugh matched the description and artist's impressions. He lived in the area and he was out and about in the vicinity on the evening at the crucial times. And as his father was the local vet, it is possible that he knew Nora. It's credible that perhaps he did indeed find Nora's body. But with his learning difficulties and being a vulnerable adult, perhaps he panicked and fled, thinking that he might be blamed. I can imagine police questioning at the time may not have gone down the same route as it possibly would today. And of course, with cases such as Stephen Kishko or Stephen Downing in mind, fear of being blamed and imprisoned for something you didn't do would be understandable. Perhaps if it was Hugh who spoke to Doris and said, I've got a woman here, perhaps he actually meant that he'd found Nora's body. If he had then panicked and fled, this would perhaps explain why the baby-faced man dumped the bag in the dustbin, which Hugh could have picked up innocently and kept hold of it without thinking of. And it would explain why he then took a route back towards the crime scene, because he was panicking, because he was scared, or because he lived nearby. I also believe that Wayne Doherty could be responsible for many more sex crimes in the years that he was free, and as a builder working abroad periodically, these could have taken place in other countries as well as the UK depending on where he was working at the time. Here there is a serious sexual predator who committed a horrific and savage sex murder. 
then less than two years later abducted and indecently assaulted a small child, a female the opposite end of the age scale. It is obviously in him to offend in this way, and it would seem to be sex as an overriding factor, regardless of the age of the victim. Now if this wasn't successfully treated when he was imprisoned following the 1980 assault, and a paltry 15 month prison sentence suggests to me that it wasn't, then can it be believed that he never offended ever again? At least now he is incarcerated, and as he is now 62 years of age, the public at large are safe from him for a long time. His full DNA profile is also now on the system, and who knows if another cold case review one day will find Wayne Philip Doherty as a possible match. I hope that you found this episode of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast entertaining. That often seems the wrong word to use when discussing the tragic taking of somebody's life, but if you've listened for half an hour, I suppose it has entertained you. I changed the episode this week as well, as I had originally considered Nora's cold case for a future episode, and then I suddenly realised that it was very near to the 39th anniversary. Well, that wasn't an opportunity I was going to waste. So next week's episode will be the one intended for this week, and again, if I do say so myself, it's an interesting and unfamiliar case. And as it's already written, it gives me a little bit of breathing space. Fellow podcasters or bloggers will know just how demanding writing and producing a weekly content can become. Yet here we still all are each week. Dedication to the cause and to your passion indeed. It's been a pleasure as always to have brought you Nora's case today. And for anybody who would like to discuss it, the discussion thread will be up on the Facebook podcast discussion group as soon as this episode has dropped. I hope to catch you on the usual social media where I am, of course, the true crime enthusiast, and look out for Nora's case to be up on my WordPress blog soon also. Thanks very much for joining me, guys. I look forward to bringing you another episode next week. This is Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing you all a safe and happy week, and I shall speak to you again soon. Take it easy, and goodbye for now.